0: Welcome back to another episode of the Constructive Liberty Podcast. This is an episode that I recorded back in November with Tony Brasunas, who is an independent reporter and an author, and we're talking about his new book, Red, White, and Blind. Now, I recorded this back in November, but I'm only releasing it now because his book is just coming out on January the 10th. So you've got about a week until that book is ready for purchase. I believe you can pre-order it, but uh, I'm going to drop a link down in the show notes where you can go find it on Amazon. You're going to love what Tony has to say about the state of things in the U.S. today. We go... <laughs> deep into it. There's there's a lot of different things that that we end up talking about. But uh, just from his book here, how the father of propaganda convinced Americans to love bananas, World War I, and the color green. Why the notion of objective professional journalism was invented in the early 1900s. How the CIA placed agents in the media and why they likely still do. How to understand family and friends with any set of political views. Why today's social media censorship violates the First Amendment. And why fact-checking websites almost always fail. Now, we don't talk about all of those things. This is only like an hour-long podcast. But we do get into quite a few different things. Tony's a wealth of information. You're going to love the interview. Go check out the book. Link in the show notes. Do good work. I'm joined today by Tony Brasunas, who is an independent journalist who was once sacked by the HuffPo back in 2016 for covering the Democratic primary from the wrong perspective. So Tony, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of some of the events in your life that led you up to someone who got sacked by HuffPo for maybe having some wrong opinions that they thought about.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I started, I started writing about politics, uh, back in 2000. I mean, back, way back, uh, when I first was able to vote and started paying attention and, and, uh, you know, noticed, began noticing in, you know, the two thousands, the aughts as they, they're called that, uh, the media was often distorted. And I started uh, about, uh, how different politicians are covered and other issues as well. And, um, I started paying more attention. I started pu- publishing a uh, political web magazine. I was living in San Francisco at the time. And uh, and that went on for a while. Um, what happened in 2016, it was actually started in 2015. Um, I was paying attention to the primary between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. And um, I just published a piece on my own blog called... Um, Everybody's talking about privilege in the time. Check your privilege. Your privilege is showing all this kind of stuff. Right. I think it's still out there, but it was really big in that in those days. And so I just thought it made more sense to to say that, you know, it may be a better indicator of your privilege if you don't have to support Bernie Sanders. In other words, if you don't need a fifteen dollar minimum wage, if you don't need your student debt canceled, if you don't need Medicare for all, if you don't need these things, maybe you have enough privilege that you're, you're just fine. And so rather than the other, the narrative in the mainstream media was that, you know, you're, you're privileged if you're not going to support Hillary Clinton. And so I wrote that up and I, I said, uh, please, ch- the title of the article was uh, check your privilege. If you can handle eight more years of Hillary Clinton and the status quo. And I wasn't trying to make some huge point. It was a fairly straightforward point. The article wasn't even that long, uh, but I got contacted by Huffington post. The piece got shared a lot on social media Um And somebody from Huffington Post contacted me and said, hey, do you want to come? uh, Can we publish this at HuffPo and and we'll make you a contributor on the site and everything like that? So I said, sure. And so I came on board and I covered uh, the the primary from primarily a Bernie Sanders perspective. This is 2015 going into 2016. And there weren't that many people in the mainstream media at that time bringing that perspective. There was a huge abundance of uh, the sort of Hillary Clinton DNC side perspective on on the race. So my pieces, a lot of times on Huffington Post, got ten thousand views, fifty thousand views, sometimes hundred thousand views. And it would be on the front page of, of Huffington Post, and that was fine. And it was going well. I wrote from a no, about a number of different articles, a number of different perspectives. There were issues with the uh, the voting machines way back then. People were suspicious. The exit polling didn't didn't quite uh, look correct. And so I wrote a few pieces about that. I covered, you know, the way the Sanders campaign was able to raise money from directly from people rather than using. Uh, PACs and and corporate donations. Um, I wrote a whole bunch of different perspectives and it was going fine. My articles were doing well. And then on the eve of the convention or getting very close to the convention, I wrote this article called, um, I think it was the the deeper reasons that many independents will not support Hillary Clinton. And it was basically going into this idea of Hillary Clinton is not trusted uh, as much as Bernie Sanders. And now that we know that Donald Trump has won the the primary on the Republican side and head-to-head polling, Bernie Sanders is doing better. And I think it has a lot to do with this trust issue. And so I wrote a piece about that. And in the piece, I mentioned some of the things about why Hillary Clinton is not not as not seen as trustworthy. And some of those things may be more controversial. I'm not really sure, but um, I wasn't trying to prove the point. I was just saying it's up to the superdelegates now. Neither of these two candidates has enough uh, earned delegates to win the nomination. And since we know Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, it makes more sense to nominate Bernie Sanders. So the superdelegates, these people that vote with 10,000 votes that, you know, the, the power of 10,000 ordinary humans get to determine the nominee. So it should be Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders. That would be my recommendation. So I published the piece um, on an, an evening, a couple of days before I went to the convention at maybe 8 p.m. Uh, and it already had 20 or 30,000 views. I went to bed and I woke up in the morning. And the piece was gone. It was just taken down. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find it, and I couldn't even log in anymore. I was off of the contributor panel, and I never <laughs> wrote for Huffington Post again. That was it. Completely. Um, that was. That's the story of me getting sacked at Huffington Post. And there is a there is a chapter in uh, my forthcoming book, Red, White, and Blind, uh, about that specific that specific experience and how that experience of censorship really took me over the edge from having seen a lot of censorship and a lot of distortion to wanting to write a book about it and to really understand it. And so that's, uh, that's what I've done.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's crazy how, you know, most people are, they're heavily biased on one side of the media or the other. And, and anytime, you know, from somebody who I don't consume a lot of media. So, so you kind of see the different perspectives, like they're heavily biased one way or heavily biased the other way. And, and you obviously got into, uh, you got, into into somebody's back there and and put out a perspective they didn't like so is is that kind of what pushed you towards writing this book that you're working on or or was there more to that in between you know 2016 leading up to now
1: I mean that was really that was the experience that sort of kicked me off I mean as I was getting ready to write a book. I so I'd gone through the Sanders experience in 2016 and um and I realized I wanted to to write about what I had seen. I also went to the convention and I saw um just a lot of deception and chicanery there at the convention and and ways in which what was presented to people on television about the primary and about the convention was very different than the actual experience I was in Philadelphia that year. And so everything that I had seen that year in 2016 was sort of boiling over in my, in my mind. And so I, I wanted to write a book and I wasn't sure if the book was going to be originally, it was going to possibly be analyzing the political parties and how often, more often than not, they're in cahoots. Like this little piece of art above my head. I don't know if you can see it. I'll move my head. Yeah. yeah. You know, you can kind of see there's a donkey on one side and there's an elephant on the other and they're playing with this beach ball. Right. Mm, yeah. And then in the middle are all the people. And the people are like, Can we <laughs> play with the beach ball? And then like, no, you don't get to play with the beach ball.
0: Yeah, you don't get the beach ball. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's just the donkey and elephant. They just sort of kick it back and forth. Um, right. So there's this sense that that they're you know, they may op- oppose each other on certain issues, but at the end of the day, they're more in support of each other because they're in support of the status quo system that Loves allows them mm. to have the beach ball and all the ordinary people kind of just stare stare in longing uh, <laughs> at it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I was wondering what that piece of art was. And now that you explain it, I can see I, I like that. It's, it's good. Yeah. Is I, that it, was what, actually in,
1: it was an artist near my home. I just was walking down the street one day near my home and there was this little art gallery. And I went in and I talked to this artist and she had made it. And I, I just was just sort of like, "I that needs to be on my wall. So I, I, bought, <laughs> I bought her art. It was a really nice experience. So. But anyway, yeah. So so that was one thing was thinking about the parties. Um, I also was very interested in elections because I had witnessed the exit polling and and I knew uh, to some extent about the electronic voting machines. And so I was very compelled to write about that. But in the end, it was the third topic that I ended up writing about, which was the media, because I realized that it was the media that was actually the. What's the right word? It's not the traffic cop. It's the filter. The media mm-hmm. is the filter, is the distortion that prevents us from actually examining how the two parties are sharing power and how the electronic voting machines may be manipulating our votes and things like that. Um, so I didn't do the research into those. So I don't talk as much about the electronic voting machines and, and, and you know, allegations of election fraud, although I'm fascinated by the topic or the parties. So I spent instead, Red, White and Blind is really about the media and it's about censorship and distortion and it's interesting. So I started writing the book in 2019. Um, and I was about, you know, just halfway through the first draft of the book, and then the whole pandemic thing happened in March of 2020, oh, right? Wow. And so I started with a fairly compelling case that the media is distorted, there, there, there's a lot of censorship and propaganda, and and there's um disinformation and fake news and all these things. And then just while the while I was writing the book, watching the whole Let on in 2021 and, and in 2022 as well, just was stunning. I mean, the book just, just kept getting longer because I had to put more stuff in there because there's so much going on. So yeah. I finally had to just put a wrap on it. So it's a <laughs> book. Um, but yeah, that's that's what the book is about. And it's really trying to help people see and understand that we're all in a certain state of deception. You know, I might be, I'm a smart guy. I'd like to think, you know, I, I can, you know, read things and I, I think about things from different perspectives but that doesn't matter. Like I'm not immune to the distortion. I'm not immune to yeah. the to the deception. We're all, you know, we're all prey to it. And so that's, that's what I call red, white, and blind.
0: Yeah. It seems like if, if you know that, that there's a distortion there, you can kind of guard yourself against it. But when you find something that you think you trust, then you're more susceptible to, to being deceived. But I'm really interested in the title, red, white, and blind, like go, go into what's behind that. Why? why blind
1: yeah so it's kind of this exact point that we're in right now it's this notion that we are all in a state of deception we're all deceived to some extent and we're all being um you know we're all being lied to in a certain sense and so there's different types of deception there's different types of what i call bias in the book so there's what i call innocent bias um which is like the bias that you have just because um let me just turn that off there um There's the bias that we have because uh, we, you know, innocent bias is the bias I have just because of who I am, like how I was brought up, like my race and gender and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, place of origin, sexual orientation, whatever you want to say, the whole identity stuff. That's innocent bias. We all have it. Everybody has their own biases based on what they, you know, how they see the world. But then there's another kind of bias that I call systemic bias, which is the bias of, of whatever organization you're working for. So like if you're running a podcast here or I'm on the podcast, you know, there's probably very little systemic bias. But like let's say, you know, in order to to do an interview at Streamyard, you would have to do certain things. Right? There might be some little bit of bias you might have in how you'd cover the news or interview me. But imagine that you're working at CNN or you're a writer at the New York Times or you're at Fox, the systemic bias is really thick. It's very yeah. strong what you're allowed to say and what you're not. What's what's going to get you in trouble, what's going to get you promoted? Um, what are the things that you, you know, what are the things that will be filtered? You know, if you talk about like the big pharmaceutical corporations on a show that's brought to you by Pfizer, you know, do you think that you can <laughs> have, have free reign to say whatever you want? No. So, so that's systemic bias, and that's a huge way in which the news is distorted. And
0: then mm-hmm. the third kind of
1: bias I talk about is nefarious bias. And I don't know if this is the worst. I mean, systemic bias is pretty bad, but nefarious bias, is actually deliberately people deliberately placing false stories. Like I wrote, a, uh, there's a whole chapter in Red, White, and Blind about Operation Mockingbird, which went on in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s, and 70s when the CIA was actually placing agents at major news uh, organizations and deceiving people, like just flat out like placing stories. And that still wow. goes on to this day. And so that I call nefarious bias. That's when actual, there's an actual agenda that people are deliberately manipulating the news, planting news. So that's what Mm. red, white, and blind is. Red, white, and blind is this idea of bringing all of this, um, all of these types of biases together to understand the way in which we're deceived. And we're all red, white, and blind to some extent, all of us Americans trying to figure out the world with this distorted media system we live in.
0: Yeah. So what, what kind of stories have been distorted or planted or, or, What kind of stories have they used some of those biases against us with? Do you have any examples on that?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And that's actually a huge part of the book is just specifically looking at stories after story after story. And I I like to start with stories that are what I call nonpartisan or or, or more like that, because I didn't want the book to be seen as, oh, this is the Democrat side saying that the right is, you know, full of fake news. Or this is the Republican (laughs) side saying the Democrats are full of fake news. The idea is that because because of the distortion is on both sides, I look at both sides. And so I start the book off um, with the Jeffrey Epstein story and go right into this story and say, look, you know, this went on for 20 years. Right. This guy at the apex of power in the Western world was basically able to run just the most disgusting, reprehensible Business you can imagine. I mean, kidnapping, mm-hmm. sex trafficking, hundreds, possibly thousands of girls against their will, and for for some of the most you know despicable people, and 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 for, you know people that may or we didn't even maybe knew were despicable, but now we know they took part in this. You know, and there were yeah. you know presidents and CEOs and actors and lawyers and the heads of big you know banks and the whole nine yards, and that this was able to go on for twenty years. That wasn't just because an accident or, like, you know, nobody thought to look at it, right? There there was – and it wasn't just because it was Republicans or Democrats didn't want the story to come out. There was a concerted effort by elements in the media, elements in the intelligence community that didn't want this story to, to come out for some reason. And that's why it was able to be hidden for 20 years.
0: Yeah, so for something, something like
1: that – ask like, what is this? What force did this and why?
0: Right. Yeah, so for something like that, it was that a – Trying to hide you know maybe some skeletons in the closet or was there a more nefarious thing behind not one of the American people to know like what what's kind of behind some of these things because I, I know if somebody gets in power and and a story like that gets out, that's gonna end their career. so that's one reason you know maybe to to crush a story like that but like what's kind of behind some of the the reasons that they would put out some of this false information or even... You know, keep a story from coming out—that's truth. But you know, they don't even want a false spin on it because that, then people will start digging. Where where does some of that
1: go? Well, so I can speak on the more broad the broad point of like how it how it works in terms of the specifics of the Epstein story. Um, there are people that are more expert on the story itself, like Whitney Webb. I don't know if you've heard of her. She just came out with this two volume set called, uh, I think it's One Nation Under Bribery or Under Blackmail. I think One Nation Under Blackmail is called that. Um, and I recommend that. But yeah, no, I mean, basically the reason that it goes on is because Jeffrey Epstein and that ring that he was running was involving some of the most powerful people in the Western world or, you know, the world as a whole. And yeah, there were people were being protected, you know, or, or people, you know, Jeffrey Epstein, one of the first things he said when he was finally apprehended is he, he got out there in front of the media and said, I have... You know, black. I have videos of just all of these people in compromising positions. You know, because his he had this um he had mansions in Miami and Paris and New York, New Mexico, I think, and then he had his own island called uh, mm-hmm. Little St. James in the Virgin Islands. I mean, it's just, <laughs> just disgusting, the whole thing. And um and he played he the, the the place was just just absolutely covered in cameras, and so he just has all this footage of like you know Bill Clinton and like Alan Dershowitz and. Bill Gates and you know people. Most people deny that they were there, but there's enough records that you can kind of piece it together. They flew on his airplane and things like that. Mm-hmm. That you know that he had he had information on these people that would have made them look really really bad and make it impossible for them to stay in their position of power or at least to stay in the public eye. You know, I mean, if you think you, you think about these people that are and I and we don't, still don't have the full list. I mean, it's just a stunning case that they they finally. Bring Epstein out, and then he supposedly kills himself in prison. Unclear if he's really dead. Unclear <laughs> if he killed himself or if somebody else killed him. So he never asked this. He never takes the stand and is asked who was actually there. Then they have Ghislaine Maxwell. So she's finally brought on on the stand, and she is convicted. And even despite she's convicted, they never have her talk about who all the people were that actually exploited. Like, when right. have you ever heard of a sex trafficking? prosecution that doesn't talk about the people that were actually, you know, the actual perpetrators of it. I mean, it's, it's astounding that that's happened. So yeah, Mm -hmm. so it goes on. I mean, this level of, of protection. And the reason is because the media and the people that run the media are managing narratives. They're managing certain stories. And so if there's a certain story about a thing or a story about a person, um, they have to maintain it. So in the Jeffrey Epstein case, um, the whole story was was very damaging to the power establishment, and so the story had to pretty much go away. So it, it, it was concealed for twenty years. It explodes, and then within like a couple of weeks, it's gone again. You know, but they mm. can't get the bottle on it because then they get Ghislaine Maxwell and then it's gone again because <laughs> they don't really want you to think about what this what this might mean about the power structure as a whole um, yeah. and how 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 the media was able or why the media on both sides, right. Concealed this story for so long, what that must mean they're concealing about other things.
0: Yeah. So you've got two sides there that are both concealing a thing like that, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of other things that they take opposite perspectives or biases on is, is one worse or better than the other? Is there one that we should can trust more?
1: You mean between like the red and the blue, right? No, um, is, not really. I mean, it, what's what I recommend, so, so what I recommend is after, in, in Red, White, and Blind, after going through all of these stories and de- demonstrate, we, so we talk about Jeffrey Epstein, then we talk about the origin of the coronavirus and why that Ask the question about this, when it came out of a lab. Then we go into some of the issues around um, the Trump election and when uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story was suppressed. And then we go into a an, an whole, whole bunch of things. I obviously talk quite a bit about the um, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton thing. And then I talk about the 2020 election as well. And then after all of that, and we've told a whole number of stories, we also talk about the water in Flint, Michigan, and the protests in Standing Rock, and, and a number of things to analyze in the media. We get to your question, which is like, okay, so is there a better set of media sources? Should we like... Go listen to Fox and 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 sort of talk radio on the red side, or should we, you know, pay attention to the New York Times and NPR on the blue side? And what I say is, yeah, how, is,
0: how can we be more informed? That that was one of my questions. I think you're leading up to it. Like you have, obviously, hopefully, you have some solutions where where we can, you know, find some good information.
1: Yeah, no, I have some good I have some good news as well. So so the, the first solution that I propose is what I call a balanced media diet. And the idea is you, you acknowledge that you, you have your own biases. I have my own biases. News sources have their own biases. Um, but that we can, so that the, the most intelligent way to approach this is that we have to develop what I call media consciousness. So media mm-hmm. consciousness is, and this is the subtitle of the book, The Truth About Disinformation and the Path to Media Consciousness. Media consciousness is this idea that we, we don't just like take in news. We kind of take a moment and say, okay, who's saying this thing? why are they saying it? What do they want me to feel? They want me to be worried. They want me to be outraged. They want me to be happy. And, and who, you know, what are they not saying? Who gets to talk about it? Right. Media consciousness is just this little, it's not some fancy thing. It's just this ability to, when somebody tells you something, think about it before you just take it in. Right. Right. Um, And so with that, with media consciousness and we develop a balanced media diet. So I propose a balanced diet and I've sort of in the book, I have 40 sources that I've come up with. Um, some of them are corporate media, some are independent media, and you read different sources each day. And that sort of helps you cultivate this media consciousness because you're going to be reading the New York Times or the Epoch Times or, you know, NPR. And then you see different sides of issues. And then you can start to, you start to you start to develop this media consciousness that allows you to understand the truth about things a little bit more of the time. Mm-hmm. So that's, and, and the, here's the good news is that we can do this much easier than we have ever been able to do this before. We're at the beginning of, or I would say we're even, you know, maybe a decade into what I call a new enlightenment because the internet has come along and it has radically opened up information to everyone. So like you and I can have this conversation right now Ken can be sitting there, Tony can be sitting here. We can have a conversation. Nobody told us we could or we couldn't. We mm-hmm. can upload it, you know, you can put it up and then it can be seen by 10 or 10,000 or 10 million or a billion people, <laughs> right? Um there's no there's no saying, it's just it, it's it's free for everyone. And that has never existed before. Um yeah. so the last time we had something like this and I write about this in the book quite a bit is we had the printing press, which came out in the 1400s and the revolutionized things. Seemed like not a big deal. I mean, it's kind of, you know, now you can move the words around and move the letters around and you can print books a little bit cheaper, a little bit more quickly, but it revolutionized the world. It, it like dramatically changed how people could access information. Suddenly, way more people could read. Within within less than 100 years, the number of people that could read in Europe was you know, more than tenfold. And then you had all these people writing books, and then you had people um, publishing their own books and talking. That led to the Enlightenment, that led to the Renaissance, that led to the United States of America and France and, like, these, these countries based on constitutions and based on free right, uh, freedom of speech and freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, these things we take for granted now, those all were birthed by the development of the printing press. And so now we're in another phase like that. The Internet is revolutionizing things even more than the printing press, because with the printing press, you still had to have, you know, the ability to print. People still had, you know, there's still quite a bit of who had money could do it. And maybe you can say that's still true with the Internet, right? Not everybody in the world has the access to the Internet. You know, there's there's a lot of people that don't. But compared to anything that's come before it, right, it's like now suddenly you and I can have a conversation with somebody in Australia or South Africa or Egypt or, paraguay you know whatever like instantaneous mm. and so we can learn it's possible to know the truth about anything um let's say it's way more possible it's way easier it's still not easy but it's way easier it is in fact possible to know about anything at any time and because of that we have the possibility of doing this balanced media diet where like, like in the Middle Ages, right, it was just what the church said or the feudal Lord said. That was the truth. The earth is the center of the galaxy. If you don't believe it, you're going to get burned at the stake or you're going to be thrown on the rack. You know, and then, you know, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago in this in this country, it was pretty much, you know, whatever the, the ABC News or NBC News told you, that was the truth. And that was that's what's going on. The communists are going to come get you, you know, and like the nuclear. You know, there's like certain narratives. And that was the truth. And so we're moving into this world now. We're about 10 years into it, I'd say, where we are seeing a rapid change, the toppling of power structures, the power structures that have basically top down, been able to tell us what is going on in the world, what we're supposed to think, what we're supposed to fear, what we're supposed to be happy about, who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, all that kind of stuff. It's falling apart. And now we're able to learn it for ourselves. And that is, dramatically changing it. And that's why there's all this stuff about fake news and disinformation and misinformation and you're getting taken down from YouTube and you're censored from Twitter because you said something that wasn't in line with the who or the this or the that. It's because they're trying to cling to their power. They don't want us to be able to just freely exchange with each other and say our own narrative. Actually, this is what I think is going on with this pandemic or COVID or this is what I think is going on with the 2020 election. Um, It's
0: it's like a Definitely yeah. like a dying beast thrashing around, taking out it is, it and can. it's still
1: powerful. It's going to be thrashing around for you know another ten years, maybe fifteen. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it's weakening each. You look at the numbers each year; yeah. it's a little weaker. It's a little, we- but yeah. they're going to react yeah. and they're going to try to. You know, a cornered beast. Yeah,
0: mm. it's it's an incredible time when someone can build a podcast like Joe Rogan, and he gets millions more views than than all the major news sources combined. But there's a quote that I really like and I I can't remember who said it. He said it's a mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. And what you were saying about, you know, looking at the different media or the the stories from different sources and being able to really think about what they're trying to make me feel and even going deeper into maybe who's benefiting from me feeling or thinking that way it really gives you a new perspective on things but kind of where does where do we go from here where does where does all that go does it continue to get more and more polarized as the beast tries to stay alive you know they pit the people against each other more and more or, or what happens from here
1: that's a great question and no you just distilled i think really a, a, the essence in a sense of red white and blind how you just sort of went through that like where we're going or or how we're getting here. So now where do we go from here? Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I look back at that time, you know, yeah, after the enlightenment or or right at that time, there was the inquisition, you know, so it's not always pretty, right? Like the power, the existing Mm -hmm. power structures, they want to keep things. And so, you know, in my darker moments, you know, I look at the censorship, you know, you look at um, people that are censored and you say, that's really worrisome, you know, and you see what happens, um, there certainly is the potential that the censorship and the the powers that be, they just lock everything down and they see what's coming and they're, and they're not going to let it happen. I don't think that's what's happening. I think there is that there's an attempt to do that. But I think what we're going is we're going through these this dying phase of these dinosaurs and we get to be part of the solution. You know, we get to we get to basically hasten their demise by. I mean, so in the balanced media diet, there is corporate news. Like I do put some CNN in there and there's some um, New York times or some Fox news because it's important to still be able to access that kind of news. It's also helpful for de- de- developing your own sort of bullshit detector, so to speak. Right. You know, We develop media consciousness, not only by trying on other sources, but, but th- by then looking at sources that maybe you're deceiving and understanding why. So, so by, adopting that, adopting a balanced media diet and, and moving towards this thing I call media consciousness, and you can call it whatever you want, the idea is we move into, like what happened in the Enlightenment, we move more into trusting our own minds. And this is the birth of science. This is the birth of democracy. Is the idea of the individual can figure things out for himself or herself. And you see the people that don't want that to happen. I mean, the New York Times had this article called uh, Don't Go Down the Rabbit Hole. Uh, that was published it was like an opinion piece it was you know maybe six months ago or something but it was a perfect distillation of of their sense of like don't think for yourself, don't go read on your own don't <laughs> do your own research which is the complete opposite of the founding values of our civilization right mm-hmm. the idea of democracy and science is there is no truth right I mean there is truth but there's no a set of answers. Science, thinking. science is a way of questioning, right? Mm-hmm. And democracy is not a set of answers. Democracy is a method to try to find the best government solution, given that you have selfish individuals who mostly just are going to go in their own self-interest, right? <laughs> Same with science, right? They're these, they're these kind of like beautiful yet flawed systems that try to sort of triangulate towards the truth. And so when you see something like the New York times saying, don't go down the rabbit hole, they're basically saying, um, we don't trust you to think on your own because if you do that, you might stop believing us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I was reading an article earlier that you wrote and you likened a balanced media diet to a uh, a balanced food diet. And I don't know if you're familiar with the keto diet where basically you cut out all carbs, everything sugars and all of those things. I'm someone who's kind of taken that approach to the news media. Like m- media is poison. I, I, try not to watch or listen or hear, or see anything, because I know it's also, it is so biased. What would you say to someone who is in a similar position? Is it important that we be, you know, trying to keep up with things or, or the way I've looked at it, if something happens that I need to hear about, I'll hear about it. Is that a valid viewpoint?
1: Yeah, I take that on at the very beginning of the book because I think it's something people think about a lot. Is like, oh, I just I opt out, you know, I'm, I don't inhale <laughs> or whatever, right? Um, so, in the balanced media diet, there is several levels of the diet, and there is what I call the sort of cleanse, like the fast, um, which I think is is a fine response to do for a couple weeks at a time or whatever. When you just sort of sort of take a chill, but no, there's no opting out because what I basically point out is the narrative that the the media is not just about the news. It's not just about sports. It's not just about politics. It's about the narrative of our lives. It's basically the the media wants to tell us through their analysis of current events, what we want, what we should dream for, what we should hope for, what we should long for, what we should fear. And they're very effective at it. They've been developing it for a hundred years since the dawn of propaganda in the 19 teens Edward Bernays, that whole thing, I talk about that a little bit. So this idea that we can opt out is, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't at times, like I said, sort of have a, have a cleansed diet where like, yeah, like a keto, you know, where I'm going to just not, I'm not going to watch CNN or I'm not going to read the New York Times for a month or two weeks or something like that. I think that's fine. It can be wise. Um, but the idea that we can just sort of for our life for like a couple years at a time, just opt out, it's just not possible because so first of all, you're, you're absorbing all of this stuff whether you want it to or not. The narrative is the water of our society. Like the narrative is the story of our culture. It's, it's we're, we're fish swimming in the narrative living in the United mm-hmm. States. You know, whether it's the war in Russia or it's the, you know, Russiagate stuff or it's COVID, like you can't just ignore it. Like you can try to say, oh, I'm, I'm not going to listen to the news about COVID. Yeah, it's going to affect your life whether you want it to or not. And what's going to happen mm-hmm. is if you think you're opting out, really what you're doing is you're opting out of media consciousness. And then what's happening is then they're actually programming you a little bit more. The other mm. thing is that not all your friends are going to, right, and your family. So your friends, you're going to you're gonna get it all through your friends and your family. So, so yeah, it, it would be nice uh, to just opt out. But I, I, I liken that to sort of a Santa Claus view or something where it's like it would be <laughs> nice if there was this old guy that kind of brought us gifts. And it'd be nice if there was a media source that would tell us the truth or else just shut up mm. about it or something like that but it's, that's not the way it is. I see it's sort of like, it, it's sort of a growing up into a mature experience of being an American citizen and saying, look, this, is, this stuff is everywhere. It's in every, it's, it's where I work, it's where I live. It, the, the, the narrative that is crafted by the giant media corporations is the story. So the only way that you can, um, or I would say the best way to navigate it is through media consciousness because those narratives are going to affect your life. We're all going to go through life. We're going to make big decisions in our life. We're going to decide where to live, what career to pursue, whether to get married, whether to have kids, whether to get a vaccine, whether to travel, have an abortion. You know, All these like hot, hot butt things, own a gun, right? all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. If we make these decisions without consciousness about the narrative, about how we're supposed to think about those things, then we are being conditioned to think about those things a, a particular way. Media consciousness allows you to, to understand the truth a little bit more. And so when we make those important decisions in our life, we can make them, you know, more wisely. And, and I would say live a better life.
0: Yeah, that, that makes sense. I, I, I like that explanation. That's, that's good. Do you, you don't happen to have the book with you to share a passage with us, do you? A little, little reading from it?
1: I do. I would love to do that, actually. I yeah. have, um, I've, I've just gotten in the advanced review copy. So the book will be out January 10th. I just want to let, let everybody know the date. I uh, can go to red, white, and to see, t- t- you know, to get the latest, um, Tony is where my blog is. Um, but yeah, let me read a little bit of the book. I think that would be great. Um, so I'm just going to start here with the introduction. Um, and this is the, uh, this is the Jeffrey Epstein passage. Um, Unless we just talked about Jeffrey, would you rather hear a different passage? This, this is uh, it's pa- up to
0: you. We're just read, yeah, anything. It's up to you. That's cool.
1: Let's start with this. So this is the introduction of the book. So this is, um, this is the very first couple pages. So if you read the book, you'll, it'll start right here. Introduction. We will know our disinformation campaign has been successful when everything the American people believe is False. Mm. That's a quote by William Casey, director of the CIA, 1981 to 1987. Virginia Roberts folded eight white towels into stacks, ensuring the seams lined up and the spa's floral logo appeared in the corner. She placed the stack towels on a polished granite countertop. There were no customers, so she tied her blonde hair into a ponytail and resumed reading where she had left off in an illustrated guide to massage therapy. She found the book fascinating. I'm only 15, she reminded herself. But she had a goal now, to ascend from mere attendant at the luxurious Mar-a-Lago resort to real professional massage therapist. A woman with pointy black locks of hair appeared. Virginia offered the woman tea, as she always did, and asked politely whether she had an appointment. The woman didn't have an appointment, but she accepted the tea. With a friendly smile and with a proper English accent, the woman asked Virginia several questions about the spa before she asked about her copious notes in the massage book. With a bashful smile, Virginia shared her goal. The woman told Virginia that her boss was a wealthy man, and as it turned out, he was looking for a massage therapist for his frequent jet trips around the world. He would pay for her training if Virginia showed the right enthusiasm for the job. The woman handed Virginia her card and introduced herself. Her name was Ghislaine Maxwell. It was June, 2000, and a three-year nightmare was about to unfold for Virginia as she followed in the path of dozens, perhaps hundreds or even thousands of young girls who were abused by Jeffrey Epstein. Later that warm summer night, Virginia visited Epstein's Palm Beach mansion, as many of the unfortunate girls did before they accompanied him to Paris, New York, London, and Little St. James, Epstein's private island in the Virgin Islands. The girls were offered as sexual property, escorts, and quote-unquote massage therapists to some of the world's most wealthy and powerful men. Millionaires and billionaires, former presidents and foreign royalty, senators and judges, hedge fund tycoons and Hollywood producers, powerful attorneys and famous actors, chairmen of boards and CEOs of giant conglomerates. They all flew on Epstein's plush private plane. The plane was nicknamed the Lolita Express. Ascending from a resort attendant to a professional massage therapist was not in the cards for Virginia. Shortly after that night, as she tells the story, she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew of England. Famed attorney Alan Dershowitz, and many others. Those known to have flown on Epstein's jet many times include Bill Clinton, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and countless others. No legal action was brought against Epstein for years. The first case brought against him occurred in 2005 when a different girl's mother brought charges of sexual assault on behalf of her daughter. Many other victims came forward immediately thereafter revealing Epstein had been running a pedophilia rape ring since at least 1993. Local law enforcement amassed a litany of evidence and multiple witnesses. It looked like a slam dunk case. Epstein faced life in prison for sex trafficking. What ensued was one of the saddest chapters in American legal and media history. The FBI stepped in and took over the case from local Florida law enforcement. The federal testimony from the victims' offense, but chose to use a grand jury, which protected Epstein from the most threatening charges. Epstein's powerful attorneys, including Alan Dershowitz, who himself was a frequent traveler on the Lolita Express, secured a highly unusual non-prosecution, quote unquote, from U.S. Attorney Alexander Acosta. It was a sweetheart deal that required him to plead guilty to just one charge at the state level. In exchange, Acosta granted Epstein immunity and canceled an FBI probe into his activities. How is this possible? Acosta claimed orders had, quote, unquote, come from above that were, quote, above his pay grade, unquote. National media coverage was nowhere to be found. A New York magazine piece entitled Billionaires Are Free was one of few national pieces on Epstein at the time, and it vindicated him with a shockingly permissive boys will be boys attitude. And that was that. The national media uncharacteristically dropped a story about sex and famous people. Indeed, the media ran away from the matter of a major sex trafficking ring as if from an infectious virus. Epstein had to register as a sex offender following the non-prosecution. But eight years later, he was still somehow flying on his personal jet with, quote, very young girls, unquote, to his private Caribbean island on a weekly basis. It was as if he had never been convicted at all. The media stayed silent. Years later, after Virginia finally escaped Epstein's clutches, she married an Australian and took her new husband's name, Gaffray. The birth of her daughter prompted her to overcome her shame and speak out. A 139-page expose about her experience submitted as evidence against Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell in 2015, was unsealed years later. In the meantime, Virginia contacted national news organizations, and in 2016, she spoke directly with ABC News host Amy Robach. Robach was intrigued, and she took up the story. She arranged a flight to New York for Virginia, and Virginia felt confident enough to tell Robach the whole horrifying story in person and on the record. Roebuck recorded it all and spent hours preparing a report on the bombshell revelations. The story would finally expose Epstein for what he had done. ABC News never ran the story. No corporate media channel picked it up despite Virginia's dogged efforts. If the main priority of American news organizations is to generate clicks and views, as many Americans believe, this story was surely a godsend. But they all ignored it. Why? We will answer this question in this book.
0: Wow! If that doesn't make your blood boil, then you're not even human. That's that's wow! It's powerful. I like it. What else would you would you share about the book before we wrap it up?
1: Yeah. So um, let's see. So so the book is basically. I think of it as four things. If, and if you're interested in these four things, you'll probably enjoy the book. So one is is an expose about the media and, and stories like what I just did with Jeffrey Epstein, sort of looking at stories and then looking at how the media covered it and sort of displaying why or displaying the level of distortion. Then the second part of the book is, is history. We go a little bit further back. We look at Operation Mockingbird. We look at the origins of propaganda. And we even look at the start of the newspapers and the origin of the printing press. So you can sort of understand the larger where we are in history. And then the third thing is the solution, you know, and I sort of talked about that, the balanced media mm-hmm. diet and seeing that we're in a new enlightenment. And we are in an unparalleled position in history where we are seeing our own access to information expand. And so we can leave this state of red, white, and blind. We can gain this media consciousness and understand not just what's going on in the news, but also be able to connect with people um, across the spectrum. When you read a balanced media diet, one of, in addition to media consciousness and all the other stuff we've talked about, one of the great benefits, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, is you can connect and you can understand other people. You don't necessarily have to take on their views, you know, on a controversial issue like war in Ukraine or, or gun rights or abortion or vaccines whatever it is but you can understand that viewpoint and so this whole idea of divide and conquer which has always been used to try to keep people away from the power that they naturally are entitled to it doesn't work as well because now you can reconnect with your aunt or your daughter or your husband or you know whoever it is right you can connect mm-hmm. with these you can understand that viewpoint so that's the third part of the book and then the final piece is sort of a um a little bit of a pep talk, I guess. The last chapter, I just sort of talk about the future and where I see it going and where I see these different phases of um, the internet, what I call the internet age unfolding as we go through these different phases. And I also talk uh, quite a bit in the book about censorship and um, you know social media. I, I take a lot of time, a couple chapters to look at social media. So if those are topics you think would be interested, then yeah, by all means, please, uh, please find the book.
0: Yeah. Awesome. I wanted to ask you one more question though. Um, just, just remembered you've been an independent journalist for, you said since about 2000. Yeah. Uh, What, what's that business model like, like, is, I'm sure that's changed over the last few years. Is that something that you're able to support yourself with or like if more people want to, to kind of get in that field to help, you know, stop the spread of the disinformation or, or the, you know, overcome the, help others overcome the bias. What's kind of the business model to go for there?
1: That's a great question. And I I, I don't spend as much time in the book as maybe I should, but I, I do look at the business, several business models um, near the end of the book and sort of propose that because it's true. We're moving into a new media age. We don't know exactly. We know that the current business model is broken. Uh, it's leading to all mm-hmm. the systemic bias with these five giant corporations that basically control everything we think or they try to, and uh, we have to fight back. So I talk about a couple different business models. So the three that I propose um, as we go into this next phase of the whole um, information internet age, the first one is subscriber model, like a subscriber base. And I think this is, this is already functioned quite well for some, although it's not, it's, I don't think it's alone is enough, but this is mm-hmm. where, you know, you go on your Substack or your Patreon or you, there's all these different places um, and you get the people that enjoy what you're doing. They, they send you two bucks or five bucks or 10 bucks or 20 bucks a month or whatever they can afford. And then in return, they get, they get some more of your content and stuff like that. And they can support you. And there's definitely a lot of different flavors of this model. Um, but I think it's a great model. I think it absolutely deserves our support. And so I do even say in the balanced media chapter, I say, um, give me an hour a day or give yourself really an hour a day for 40 sources and give yourself $20 a month. And, you know, people have different amounts of money that they can afford, but if you could put aside $20 a month to support uh, independent alternative media, that if, if enough us did that, that would be, that, that would solve the whole problem. Um, right mm-hmm. So that's the first model. And I think it's, it's, it's possibly the best model, but I'm not sure it's totally going to work because a lot of people don't, they're not yet prepared to send $5 a month. You're too used
0: they? to free stuff.
1: <laughs> people are used to free. And, um, and It's not that that's bad and I don't want people to feel guilty but if you if there's a particular person you like if you like you know if you like whatever it is whatever whatever particular source you're into um, yeah send, it, send them five bucks a month or ten bucks a month or 20 bucks a month whatever you can or a dollar a month you know whatever it is because then what you get you, what you get out of that is you're, you become a little bit more um, opted in to, to mm-hmm. follow their perspective and you also support them so that they can do a better job. So that's the first model. The second model is the advertiser model. And um, to some extent, the advertiser model has created problems in our current system. It's, it's, it is responsible for systemic bias. Like when I talked about Pfizer sponsoring CNN show, and then the CNN show saying, let's go look at these, you know, COVID vaccines and see how they work (laughs) Sponsored by Pfizer, who's making billions of dollars, right? You know that it's not, you know that it's biased. So, but, but on the other hand, the advertiser model has been around since the founding of this country. It's been around as as part of the freedom of the press. So we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you can get advertisers and you're completely transparent about who they are, you disclose it to people, you're conscious of the bias they may have, you're aware of the systemic bias and you disclose it. I think that model is, is still workable. Um, so you know, you'll go on to you'll go on and watch. You know, like you were talking about. Um, uh, wait, we just talked about the great big podcast guy, Joe Rogan. Oh, uh,
0: Joe Rogan, yeah,
1: yeah. like <laughs> there for a minute. So, so Joe Rogan, right? You're, you'll go to or like, uh, and and they'll be like, you know, sponsored by NordVPN or something. You know, sometimes they'll be just the sponsorship, and mm-hmm. I don't think that that's the, the whole solution either. But I think that that is that that deserves a role as long as it's done responsibly. The third business model I talk about is um, maybe this one's a little more controversial, but I think it has also great potential. And it would be um, a role of the government in supporting independent media and about it. But you study the history of the free press and, you know, that, that Congress enacted the lowest postage rates for periodicals throughout the 1800s so that you could mail a newspaper through the mail for a penny. And that, and they did that specifically because the press is mentioned in the Constitution. It's the only non-political role mentioned in the Constitution. It's absolutely essential for democracy. We have to have the watchdog, you know, role. And so the government recognized that. And so today, to expand that, you could do something where, like possibly on your tax return or something, uh, some form each American would get like a hundred dollars in coupons that they would then distribute to the independent new or the news sources of their choice. So they could send all a hundred dollars to the New York times, or they could send a dollar to Tony Bersunis and a dollar to Ken and a dollar to, you know, Joe Rogan, they could do whatever they wanted. And as long as the government had no role in choosing the list, right? The list of your possible choices, the list would be infinite. There wouldn't be like a list of whoever wanted to enter their name, throw their hat in the ring as a journalist. Then you're on the list and you can receive the coupons. I think that has a lot of potential. Um, it's obviously more complicated than the other two. And we'd have to really, excuse me, spend some time thinking it through. But those are three business models that I talk about that I think are, I, I think, have real potential. And as we see these dinosaurs dying, um, I think certainly the first two and some version of the third, I think, will start to take shape. Yeah, gotcha. For myself, definitely- you asked about me personally. So I have been an independent journalist for a long time, but I've had a second career uh, alongside okay. also do other things I do some computer programming and things and I'm just somebody that that I have to do multiple things at once I get bored if I'm (laughs) doing one thing and I also realize if I if I was trying to make money off the journalism only I might I might not do it as with as much you know interest and joy Mm -hmm. Um, that's my own personal thing and I know there was a there was a media conference with um uh, Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone are. There's there, that's one of the one of the really good independent media sources out there these days, and they were asked this question, and they they both said, you know, we're doing this as our only as our only thing, and we're making a living at it, but it's hard, and we don't recommend it. You know, so it's <laughs> like if you if you literally can't not do it, you know, if it if it's like you're drawn to do it,
0: then right. you
1: don't make a living at it. You'll just have yeah. to put everything you have into it. But if right. you can do something else alongside it. Um, I recommend that because then that'll take off some of the stress uh, mm-hmm. of, like you have to pay the bills and support your family uh through independent media which is which is challenging. There are many people doing it, but it's it's really challenging
0: right, yeah, I can see how that would be super difficult because what gets you into it is your interest in a certain thing, and to go full time in that, you got to cover a wide wider variety of things so i can I can see how that would be a lot more difficult. So yeah. Tony, where can people find you and follow you if they want to keep up with you? And, and then I know you mentioned the website where they can buy the book and I'll put that in the show notes, but where can they connect with you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Tony Brasunas, if you can spell my last name, Brasunis. Um I'm Tony Brasunas on Twitter. I'm Tony Brasunis on Facebook and I'm moderately active in both places. Um, I have a Substack, which I'm also, I publish on more or less weekly uh, or at least every other week. I publish something that'll probably be even more as we get close to the book release and that's redwhiteandblind.substack.com. So, um those are the best places to find me and then of course com is my uh sort of my central hub, that's my blog. So uh yeah, and I'm out here in uh California. You can also come find me here in person knock on the door and i say hi. <laughs>
0: All right. Cool. Well, hey, I appreciate your time. This has been a good conversation.
1: Likewise, Ken. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You bet.